0: Good morning. It is certainly good to be with you. Um, thank you, Tracy, for reading the text and for inviting me to come today. Um, it's always good to be with Christ Presbyterian Church and supporters of the work that we do out in the field and reaching women exploited. And I'm good to, I'm also glad just to wrestle with the text with you. Um, I do think that the last time I was here, it was the right after. Trump had been elected. Um, and so, and now Tracy's given me this doozy of a text. So, yeah, I am. I'm grateful to know you as a friend and <laughs> <laughs> colleague. Um, 2020 is a historical year. We've had a global pandemic and a global response to the murder of George Floyd. Protests and policy changes, elections, things people have waited and prayed and sought out for decades are finally coming to fruition because of the pandemic and because of our response. Um, And then I think I feel like what happened for me is with all the global things, grief that was happening, a lot of my milestones this year got lost, got shuffled up, and Um, Maybe even some of your griefs this year could not be touched because you were isolated from friends and from family. And what's before us now is an inauguration. Um, And again, I'm reminded of when I was here. But there is also a lot of newness. As Tracy pointed out, we we have entered a new year, 2021. And we've entered a new year to seek out the Lord's promises for us, opportunities for us, new ways that he'll comfort us, um, a possible vaccine making its way around the globe, um, a new presidency and a new year full of hope for the same, maybe for some of us, even full of anxiety. But it's a shift. And I think our text this morning speaks of that tension as well. It speaks of new, right? And it speaks of history. There's a new baby on the scene and there is a people great with history who have long awaited this baby and so God it is the prayer of my heart that the words of my mouth and the meditation of each of our hearts would be able to hear and receive what you would have for us this morning through the gospel writer Matthew in Jesus name Um, this text is rich so as I Worked my way through it, I realized that it was loaded with backstory after backstory. The writer Matthew is sure to quickly include historical references, references that lead his Jewish readers back in time. Matthew uses the history of Israel's journey and their heritage to share the gospel. Uh, The words of the Lord, the words of the Lord spoken generations ago, are made full in this child. And if we were to back up just simply to chapter one, in chapter one, Matthew not only lists the genealogy, he clearly states the number of generations between each historical movement for Israel. There's 14 generations between Abraham to David. That's the first movement, God introducing himself to Abraham and later calling the senior citizen to be the father of many nations right? Because what God speaks, he will fulfill. And the second movement, David, king of Israel, a king picked by God himself, the youngest of all his brothers, who's out watching sheep when the prophet arrives to anoint him. And most people don't know this, but sheep herding is actually quite a dangerous job. And it was mostly held by young girls because they were considered expendable. Um, Rachel and Leah, that's what they're doing. They're tending sheep when, Moses, or Rachel, when Jacob finds them. And Zipporah and her sisters are tending sheep. Um, but here we have David tending sheep. So he's the youngest. He's out tending sheep, which means that in his family's eyes, he was expendable. It was a dangerous job. And yet what God speaks, he fulfills through David. Because when he speaks... God has every intention to fulfill his promises. The next movement, 14 generations to Babylon. It is a dark time for Israel, a time of exile, a time of worshiping their God as illegal, at least, or maybe at best, sanctioned. And yet, eventually, they leave exile because God who speaks is always fulfilling his promises. And then the last movement here, the Christ. Um, I'm going to reread for us 13, verse 13. Now, when they had departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. So there's a couple of key words and phrases that strike strike me as I read through the text, and in particular this very opening verse of our text. Herod searching to destroy the child. The word search implies effort or a use of resources. There is sweat that comes behind to search, right? You search to try to find your keys at the last minute because you're about to be late for work. There's a little bit of sweat boiling, right? Even if Herod is paying someone else to sweat for him, which he probably did, search. There's an intention. And to search to destroy, there's certainly a sense of evilness in that. And we're here. We're told later in the text that Herod becomes furious because uh, because he was tricked. Uh, if I looked at the Greek, the Greeks the, for the word furious is pretty common for the word like in English to be enraged. Like he was full of rage. Uh, I know for myself, I um, have wrestled with a temperament from time to times ever since I was little. Um, And it's worked its way out mostly, but the one place that shows up is driving. And in particular, when I'm driving in Boston, um, and nobody's following any of the rules. One day I was in a left turn only lane, and there was two cars in front of me. All three of us went straight. So I become rage. And it's this moment where there's this switch that flips. And I go from singing songs to the radio to like really... Well, I just can't repeat what happens next, but this rage that takes over you where you disconnect from your humanity, right? Herod is full of rage because he had been tricked, right? And when I looked up the word in the Greek for tricked here, it's to be made a fool of, right? And so what's interesting to me is that Herod was trying to trick the Magi. He says to them, go tell me where this baby is, that I might worship him. And then they're warned, and they don't tell him. And now he's mad that he's been tricked. Um, yeah, he wanted to use the wise men, the very people that brought him the gospel, to destroy this king of the Jews. And Herod has to. He has to destroy the king of the Jews because this king, threatens Herod's kingdom. It threatens all that he's established. And Herod, as crazy as he was, which is certainly true, he was a wealthy man. He was a clever man. He was a smart man. He is responsible for the architecture that led to the water ducts in all of first century that would bring water into entire cities. Herod built a city out in the desert where they only received two inches of rain and in that city he put a fresh water pool so that when his guests would finally arrive and they're dripping from sweat from their travel in the desert there would be this pool where they could bathe themselves. He did that intentionally right to manipulate their emotions to get even wealthier people to support his kingdom. Herod did not have many people dare To trick him and the wise men did and now this king of the Jews is threatening this kingdom that he's established it's not surprising at all to me that Herod believes that his own personal efforts can stop the plans of the king right and I think uh, to myself in the different parts of life when I try to reroute what the Lord has laid before me right and this idea that I can reroute God's plans. And we get lost in our own kingdoms and holding closely to those things. And yet, God spoke to foreigners. He used foreigners, these wise men, to both bring the gospel to a king, an evil king, as well as help hide his son. Because over and over again, what we know to be true is that when God speaks, when he says this is what's going to happen, he will do what it takes to fulfill those promises. The other word that struck me is the word Egypt, the country Egypt. Egypt is about 80 miles from Bethlehem. I had the privilege in seminary to study abroad in Jerusalem um, and went down to Bethlehem. And for spring break, we went to Egypt and we hopped a, a bus And this bus, it was at night because we got the cheapest tickets, of course. And you rode this bus to the border of a lot, Egypt, and then you had to get out and walk across the border because they won't let any vehicles come from Israel into Egypt. So all of that seems very suspicious to me. I remember going into someone's apartment and they took my passport and they said they would come back with a visa. We just all hoped that would be true. Um, but this bus ride in particular was quite hideous because throughout the whole ride, now I don't speak Arabic, so this would maybe make it more enjoyable, they played a 1980s American movie that was dubbed in Arabic and it was blaring through the bus. So from midnight to 2am, like that's that was my experience. I, I arrived to Egypt exhausted, mad, a little nauseous from the ride. Um, I don't, I'm not sure. I don't think that that was Mary and Joseph's experience. Um, but it was 80 miles, a little bit more than what I traveled to come from Boston this morning. But I made it in a vehicle. So it, however long it took them, Joseph responded immediately. The angel said, rise, take the child and his mother and go to Egypt. And Joseph did it in the dead of night. And Egypt in the first century, would have been a safe place for Mary and Joseph and Jesus to hide. It was a Roman providence, so it was outside of Herod's jurisdiction. He had no authority there. It also was unusually large in the number of Jews who lived in Alexandria, so they could nestle themselves against kinsmen. Um, Jesus would safely take his first steps in what is now modern-day Africa, um, which is where Egypt is located. And yet for Joseph, as a Jew, with his historical ties to Egypt, hearing that word, hearing that country, go to Egypt, and this is where you'll be safe, would have came with a lot of weight. Because for Jewish people, for the Hebrews who became the Jewish community, Egypt comes with historic and symbolic themes of slavery and oppression. The Jews were held slaves in Egypt for 400 plus years, right? They were treated less than their image-bearing selves. They were treated far less than the chosen people of God. And so to be told, go to the place where you were once held in slavery, we know that Joseph would know this because Passover was still being practiced at the time, the celebration that announced their freedom from Egypt. Jesus grew up celebrating Passover. And so I think the writer uses Egypt for a reason. And to repeatedly say, because repeatedly in Exodus, God says to Israel, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Right? Nothing you did brought you up out of Egypt. I did. And so the writer knows that Joseph will receive this warning with some wrestling, And the writer wants the reader to remember that God speaks and he fulfills what he has spoken. Despite evil kings, despite 400 years of slavery, despite when our own stubborn hearts direct us in a different direction, God still fulfills what he has spoken. What is not lost on me is the overlap between Moses and Jesus and their infant years. Both took their first steps in Egypt. Both are survivors of a massacre against their people. Both both are survivors. Moses delivers and enslaved Hebrews out of Egypt, and Jesus will deliver all who believe from their slavery. Out of Egypt, I will call my son. It's a powerful text that comes from Hosea, originally spoken to a people of a promise of when they'll no longer be exiled. And here, spoken with that ongoing promise. Yes, Jesus came as an infant, and that was the beginning of this promise being fulfilled. But we are still waiting for his second coming, for our true release from exile. Here, repeated is to direct the reader that Jesus is the true Messiah. Jesus is the true king because God is faithful to fulfill his spoken word. Fulfilled is repeated in this text, and it really literally translates to be made full. To be made full. And what else strikes me is the phrase, the child. I just thought that this was interesting. Each time the angel speaks to Joseph, the angel says, take the child and his mother. But when God speaks, he refers to Jesus as my son. It catches my attention because Joseph is the man who will raise Jesus. And I'm sure Jesus called Joseph father and dad. We certainly know that that's the way the village people referred to him. Later, when Jesus is only able to do a few miracles, they say, isn't this Joseph's son? Right? And yet here, the writer makes clear that the child and his mother are not Joseph's. That Jesus is born of Mary, but not Joseph. Pointing once again to him being the child to fulfill the spoken word of one born of Jesse, one born of a virgin, the true Messiah, and the true King. Throughout our text, we've we've been directed to Jesus as the deliverer, as the true king, the Messiah, the fulfillment of God's word. And I'm going to just reread verse 18. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Ramah, is about hundreds of centuries before this. Ramah is the town where Nebuchadnezzar gathers Israel before they're taken to exile into Babylon. There, they would have been separated from their children, mother from child, as well as separated from Israel's land, their heritage, and from their God. Jeremiah uses Rachel as the mother of Israel to personify Israel's grief from being separated from communion with their god and this reference would have been potent for the listeners they would have remembered stories that they would have told about being an exile and the time of exile and this massacre taking place as Herod has massacred their baby boys and their possible heritage you have no one to pass your family line on to your history line on as It would be men in this time period who would carry on this heritage. This is a grievous scene, and even there still, God is still at work fulfilling his promises. I want to be clear here, as it can feel very heavy, that God did not have these baby boys killed. But God in his sovereignty knew Herod's heart long before time began. And God spoke through the prophets of the Old Testament using current situations. And in this particular text, as given to Jeremiah, God uses a horrific scene of the exiles to speak grief and truth and later hope to the people of Israel during their time of exile, both of a time of their own literal freedom and of Christ to come. And I know that several uh, commentaries would say that this, this text here, verse 18, was more speaking of the grief that the women would have experienced or Rachel just representing Israel because they were separated from their land. But I also think it speaks of a real grief. Real baby boys were murdered here. And I know that God cares about those things. I've never been a mom and I've never lost a child, but I know moms who have. And I know men who have and it seems like a horrific and ongoing haunting experience. And I believe that the heaviness here in this text is put there for a reason. Because when God speaks, he fulfills his word. And in this grace, we know that Christmas is followed by Easter. We know that crucifixion is coming and Mary will need to be assigned a new son to care for her. The promises of the Lord do not go out void. The word came and became flesh and dwelt among us. And in beginning was the word. And so the word of the Lord from all, from the beginning, had every intent of being fulfilled. God in his character cannot not fulfill what he has spoken. These were strange times for Mary and Joseph. Stressful unknown, seems pretty constantly moving. A horrifically painful time for the people of Bethlehem to have their next generation wiped out, to have their children killed before them. And yet through it all, God continued to fulfill his spoken word. And he invites us as human to participate, humans to participate. I don't know about you, for me, COVID has been in flux. And in April, when I was deep into quarantine, uh, working from home, and the only other human I saw for about eight weeks was my roommate. That was it. Um, Neither of us are pretty huggy people. So there was, I didn't touch another human for 42 days. Um, The heaviness loomed in the air. It was a very difficult month for me. I basically, worked for about two hours, and that's really all my skin could withstand being awake, and then I would sleep, and then I would wake, work for two more. It was exhausting just to breathe. And each day I entered a real conversation, a deep conversation and confession of despair with Jesus, of where, what is happening here, and where are you in this? Maybe it wasn't April. Maybe for some people here, COVID's been like a dream. I know for some introverts, it was that way for a little while. But I think for most of us, we felt that separation from family and from friends and from the ability to just simply reach out. But as the writer Matthew reminds me and reminds each of us and reminds his reader that we serve a God who brought a rag tag desert-dwelling slave people to be the freedom for all nations, because we serve a God who, when he speaks, he is faithful to fulfill his word. So I think about these things, and I think of a God who used foreigners to bring the gospel to evil kings, to an evil king, and sent his people to be foreigners in Egypt so that he could maintain the gospel. He used everyday means to speak out his truth as well as supernatural angels speaking to people. As we witness history of God making full what he has spoken, what he has spoken, we are invited to participate. And so I have a couple, just a couple of questions to end with us. Will you this year... Will you participate? Who is God asking you to share the gospel with? And have you decided they don't deserve to hear it? Is it an evil king? Is it a foreigner? Is it someone of a different ethnicity or race or economic class than you? And what can you do to prepare your heart, to change your heart, to be the one to bring the gospel to that evil king? and what they do with it then is their invitation and i think the other question for me is and for each of us that i believe the writers invited us into is this year what are the things that you believe god spoke to you at one time that you've given up on you said that's not going to happen that you have decided he doesn't hear that particular prayer of yours, or that particular question? Can you go back to that question? And I have a problem. I I have no problem asking God these questions, but I sometimes begin to worship the question, right? So also, can you leave the question there? Believing that this God is at work, both speaking promises into our lives and fulfilling them. Let's pray. Jesus, we are undeserving. But I thank you for the poverty that you experienced on earth, financially, emotionally. I don't know who you would possibly find as your uh, colleague or equal to grieve with and to share with. And I thank you that you are a God who continues to speak beyond our circumstances and yet does not rush us through those circumstances. I thank you that you are a God who sees and hears our, problem, our, our sorrows and our questions and who speaks truth. God, I pray this year for 2021, that yes, I do pray that it would be a happier year. I do pray for the vaccine to come, not because my hope is in it, but because we can re-engage with other humans in a way that's been withheld from us. But ultimately, God, I pray for my heart and for the hearts of the people in this room that you would continue to transform us by the renewing of our minds, that we would see your hands at work even more than we did last year that we would hear almost audibly the promises and the hopes that you have for us, in particular, and for us as image bearers, as humans created to serve you. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen.